Hello, happy new year, and welcome back to Tomato Tomato. I'm your host, Talia Shuren, and I am absolutely stoked to bring you this episode with the brilliant Professor Roman Feynman from Brown University. Professor Feynman earned his PhD in psychology from Harvard University in 2015. He then went on to complete postdoctoral work at both Harvard and UCSD before coming to Brown, where he now teaches as well as directs the language and thought lab. We start in a pretty conventional place. We talk about his research and the nuts and bolts of language, thought, cognition, and psycholinguistics. But then we start getting into the specific research he's done. And from there, we talk about everything from marketing to semantics and pragmatics, to apples and martinis and ducks and hammers. And finally, one of the best justifications ever given on this podcast as to why linguistics is interesting. It's a great episode. I loved talking to him. He's really just a total genius. So I hope everyone listens to this podcast and learns a lot. And without further ado, please welcome into your ears, Professor Roman Feynman. Welcome to the podcast, Roman Feynman. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, Uh, nice to be here. Yeah, so could you just tell everyone who you are, what your research, what you're interested in, passionate about, and then why your work matters? Yeah, so um, I study language acquisition and cognitive development or conceptual development mostly, um, and how those two things interact and what they kind of have to do with each other. So part of my work is looking at how kids learn language and how kids learn the ability in particular to understand the most abstract components of language, the most abstract words, um, and how they learn to put words together into more complex sentences. Um, So I'm really interested in the acquisition of of semantics, of meaning, of compositional meaning. And then part of my work is trying to understand how adults use language to express complex ideas and what those ideas translate to on the meaning side. That's very cool. So to give us just a little bit more like specific about your work and what you do, do you do a lot in psychology, right? You have a PhD in psychology, you're sort of looking at those intersections between psychology and linguistics. So what does psychology have to do with linguistics? And what sort of would someone who's maybe unfamiliar with linguistics to the degree that you are or I am, um, what should they know about psychology and linguistics? Yeah, so it's interesting because there are sides of linguistics that are kind of farther from psychology and there are sides of linguistics that are kind of closer to psychology. And then there are sides of psychology that are really far from linguistics and there are sides of psychology that are pretty close. So I think the most kind of well-known intersection is that there's a whole uh, other, you know, separate field of psycholinguistics, which is basically the combination of psychology and linguistics. In practice, a lot of psycholinguistics is actually dealing with a pretty small part of where psychology and linguistics could make contact in principle. Um, So a lot of psycholinguistics is about kind of online language processing. No, definitely not all of it, but in practice, a lot of it has been about things like parsing the grammar of a sentence or understanding the meaning of a sentence kind of as you're hearing it or how you produce a sentence, how you go from the kind of grammatical knowledge that you might have to an actual sentence that is coming out of your of your mouth. So that's been where the most intersection has been. Um, but in general, you know, you can, th- there's a couple of different ways to think about language, I think. You can think about language as, as an object of study in itself, right? You can take language as a kind of thing you're trying to understand as such. And you can ask questions about it, like, for example, how do languages change over time? Or what kinds of pressures change the nature of a language? And those are questions that you can ask, in some sense, independently of 
the minds that are using that language, just treating language as a kind of abstract object. So like the way I think about this is, you know, you could study like chess the same way, right? You could study the theory of chess openings. Now, of course, chess is a thing that is only played by humans and machines that humans invented. It doesn't really exist outside of human minds, but you can still study it as an abstract object um, separately from the minds that use it. But you could also study the psychology of chess playing. So you could study, for example, how are the minds of chess experts different than the minds of chess novices? And lots of uh, lots of interesting research has been done on that question. Um, and so it's the same, I think, with language. You can study language as an abstract object, or you can study language as a thing that people have in their heads and that they use and understand all the time. And in that second way of looking at it or of thinking about it, there are lots and lots and lots of ways that it intersects with psychology because psychology is basically trying to understand, you know, cognitive psychology in particular is trying to understand what is people's cognition like? What are their minds like? How does thinking work? And to the extent that we express our thoughts in language, there's a there's a clear point of contact there. That's really, really cool. So, is, so you're talking about sort of like there's linguistics, the the word, the, the the field of study is really, really broad. I think that's kind of what you're getting at, is that there's lots of different ways to do this and that language can be an abstract object, which I think is something that people don't get a lot of the time, that when you study linguistics, you're really not studying like English per se, or even like things that are specific to English. It's It's language as a thing, language as a noun. I think that's really cool that you're looking at language as an abstract object, but in our minds. Yeah, and I think even in linguistics, um, like aside from psychology, even linguists, I think, vary a lot in how they they look at it. So like there are definitely a lot of linguists that do treat language as just an abstract object. But then there are linguists who I think are concerned with how it is instantiated, how that abstract object is represented in people's heads. You know, what is it that people know when they know a language? What is that knowledge like? How do we characterize it? And there are folks working in, you know, for example, syntax or semantics, whose work is constrained by those sorts of questions, by the need to eventually make contact with how people's minds work. Right. Okay. So, so you led right into that. So language and then kind of thought, because that's kind of what you're getting at this, this, this knowledge that we have of language and it's in our brains and that's thought. And isn't there a lot of research being done about like what comes first thoughts or, or language, or is it Yes. Um, Well, I guess depends on what exactly you have in mind there. But like whether you mean things like learning, you know, in general, like learning the meanings of words or learning how to express sentences um, or whether you mean in sort of online processing. I think in terms of online processing, like just what I'm doing right now as I am speaking to you, I think the idea, kind of at least the intuition that most people have is I start out with something, some message that I want to convey to you. And then I have some complicated sequence of processing in my head that translates that message into, you know, in, in this case, spoken speech in English. And then you've got some system in your head for reverse engineering that back to a message, right? So you get the spoken speech in English, and then you've got to do something that that kind of reverses the process that I did to get back the message that I intended um, to convey to you. And that's that's roughly how a conversation between us is going, is we're, we're going back and forth kind of doing that. That's at least at first pass, I think, the story that um, that everybody has in mind. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what's the difference then between language and thought in children versus in adults? Because if thoughts come first, if like the desire to convey something comes first and then spoken language, then how does that work with children? Yeah. So with children, I think there's 
there's kind of like a fundamental mystery or, or puzzle, which is one of the things that I uh, am trying to understand the most, which is, do they have the same thoughts as us? So obviously, they don't have the same language as us, at least at a certain point, right? Like, no child is born knowing English. That's the thing that they have to learn. But to what extent do they have the same thoughts as us? And then the only thing they have to learn is how to express those thoughts in language. And so, you know, a good kind of comparison for that is just imagine yourself learning a foreign language, right? You would presumably have all of the thoughts that you currently have. You'd be able to think about all the things that you can think about. You just wouldn't know how to say them in that other language. And so maybe that's kind of the position that kids are in too, except with their first language, right? Maybe learning their first language is like you learning your next language. That's one possibility. And the other possibility is, no, no, no. Kids are really fundamentally different than us, not just in the language that they know, but in how they think. And in the process of development, of growing up, they start to think more and more like adults. And maybe the process of learning language has a causal role to play in that. Maybe it actually gets them to start thinking more and more like adults in some way. And then that is, of course, a big, big topic of research and really just kind of, again, uh, mysterious. So how could that possibly work? How could hearing a sequence of sounds, or if it's a sign language, seeing a sequence of signs, how does that get a new thought into your head? that you couldn't think about before. It's it's pretty clear how it could get a thought into your head that you could think about, but you just happen to not be thinking right now. That's what communication is. Right. But how could it get a thought into your head that you couldn't think about before, right? So what is the process of learning new concepts like? And how could language help a child do that? For my money, that's like the million dollar question. That's a million dollar question. So is that kind of what you're talking about? So on the, I guess the landing page for you at on like Brownie EDU is you have the question, or the statement, there are no bears on Mars, right? right? And you say like, that's that's a statement that we all understand. We may not yeah. have thought it before. We may not have thought about bears or Mars in the same sentence, but that is something that everyone understands. And then because we understand that sentence, we can get to other sentences like, there are no brown bears on Mars, right? right? Or that there are no mammals on, or, you know, we can, there's all kinds right. of presuppositions entailed in that sentence. Is that kind of what you were sort of referencing then? Yeah, that's part of it. So, so there's there's a couple of components there. So one is, how do we learn those individual words? There are no bears on Mars. Um, do we start being able to think about bears and about Mars and about whatever? And we just don't know what it's called. Now, in the case of like Mars, especially, that just seems kind of crazy. Like if you'd never heard of Mars, how would you be able to think about Mars at all? Like the, presumably the only way you even know Mars exists is because someone told you at some point, right? So that's, that's the kind of puzzle I was referring to is like, how does somebody telling you about Mars, where by hypothesis, you couldn't think about Mars before, how did hearing about it get the idea of Mars into your head? How exactly does that work? So that's one part of it. And the other part of it is, I think what you were just referring to is the way that you have of putting those meanings together. So not only do we have the individual concepts and the words that that express those concepts, but we also have the ability to compose them in, in this kind of like systematic way where we understand what the thought is really easily and we can draw inferences on the basis of the thought as soon as we understand it, right? It just feels like really, really intuitive, I think, to, to pretty much every user of English to make that kind of inference. And so then there's a developmental question about that. Like, is that something that kids have to learn? Is that a system of, of putting meanings together into thoughts that has to develop? Or is it the case that 
the kind of basic ability to put concepts together into thoughts is already there. And what's missing are just the individual pieces, right? So you're kind of, it's like a, uh, like a, a map that you're coloring in or something, right? Like you've already got the outlines, you've got all the ways in which it could work, but you just don't have the pieces there yet. And so the process of learning individual concepts on that story um, is just the process of like learning what pieces to fill in your vocabulary with so that you can then compose them and put them together, but you're not learning the ability to compose that that you've already got, right? Mm -hmm. um, so these are these are kind of different alternatives. Um, and again, I mean, I think I, I don't think we well at least I should speak for myself. Maybe somebody knows the answer to this, but I at least do not know which of those is the right story. Um, and so that that is one of the things that I'm really really trying to understand. So. You did a study that I found really cool called Mapping Words to the World, in which, and please correct me if I'm wrong, you had, uh, you were sort of testing children versus adults and their ability to locate objects and um, use a red apple, I believe it was. And so with children, it was that red apple and children looked for the red apple, whereas adults gravitated more towards grammar to show them which object you were referring to being like that. They were like, okay, so what is that? Oh, it's the red apple. And children started with red apple and then found that. And at the conclusion of this study, you said that, you know, uh, this study sort of alludes to that there may be a substantive difference between how children and adults connect words to the world. So what are these substantive differences between language acquisition in adults and children? And yeah. how and why does our understanding of reference and grammar evolve? What's going on here? With reference. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's a that's a really, really good question. So this is um, I should say this is a study that that was really, really led by uh, a postdoc in my lab, uh, Dr. Gabor Brody. He's a wonderful, brilliant scientist. And this was really, really his idea. So I'm, I'm just you know, I, I was like a, a contributor and a participant, but I'll, I'll tell you about it since I'm here. So what we were interested in in that study is just how do you turn a sentence into an understanding of what out there in the world someone is talking about. And so this is, you know, in, in uh, philosophy of, of mind and of language, this is kind of the classic problem of reference. How do you figure out that a particular sentence or a particular phrase refers to, is about something out there in the world? How do you pick which thing in the world it's about, right? So if I tell you, like, hey, there's a red apple in my bag. And then I pull it out and I say, oh, look, it's that red apple. You have some idea that I'm talking about the same thing twice, right? That the first time I said a red apple in my bag and the second time I said that red apple, both of those were about the same thing. Right. Right. Um, yeah. That there's like one object in the world that those two sentences refer to. If I said, there's a red apple in my bag, and then I rummaged in my bag, and I pulled out a red apple, and I said, oh, a red apple, right? What's your intuition? It's like a little weird, right? It's like, are you talking about the same thing? It sounds like you might be introducing a new thing, yeah. right? It sounds like you might be talking about another object. And all I did there really is I changed the grammar from that red apple to a red apple. And so this was basically the, the kind of starting intuition, is that just these, these little grammatical elements, these articles, tell us, as again, competent users of English, uh, whether somebody is talking about the same object that they were talking before about before, or whether somebody is talking about something new. 
Okay, now what is Red Apple doing? Well, Red Apple is then presumably helping you to identify which object I'm talking about in the first place, right? And then maybe to re-identify it as the same one. But if the grammatical uh, particle, like if that, if the word that is already telling you that I'm talking back about the thing I was just talking about, the same thing, then what is Red Apple doing in, in that case, in that Red Apple? Because it doesn't seem like it's really strictly necessary anymore. It seems like that is telling you, okay, we're going to talk about the same object again. And red apple is just kind of like helping you to get, you know, to, to further just like reaffirm, yeah, 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 we're talking about that thing from before. And so the intuition for this study comes from this, this idea of trying to separate the roles of the grammar from the role of the descriptive information like red apple. And this goes back to this old idea, um, I think this is from the 60s, it, it was kind of like a thought experiment first proposed by philosopher Donnellan, who just pointed out, look, descriptions, descriptive information can just be false, like all the time. And we have absolutely no problem figuring out who or what someone is talking about, even when it's false. And so he, his example was uh, just like, imagine you're at a party and you're talking to the host who knows everybody at the party. And you point to some, some guy and you say, hey, who's that guy drinking a martini? And it turns out that that guy is not drinking a martini. He's holding a martini glass, but he's actually drinking water. And maybe the host knows that, right? Okay, nevertheless, the host who you're talking to has no problem telling who you're talking about, right? You can both kind of figure out that, oh yeah, you mean that guy over there. The fact that he happens to not actually be drinking a martini, like the fact that that description just happens to be false in that particular case, just kind of doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter for your ability or the person you're talking to, their ability to figure out who you're talking about. So what we basically wanted to know is whether kids would have the same ability, right? So first we wanted to, to give a kind of like experimental demonstration that adults would really do this kind of thing that Donaldson imagined they would do, right? Or that kind of feels intuitive from this example, that they really would be able to identify an object, even if the description doesn't really match. And we wanted to know if kids would do the same thing. So basically whether kids understand this kind of information the same way that adults do. So Gabor's really clever idea for how to do this was, okay, let's just have an object that transforms. Let's have a magical object that starts out being one thing, and then, you know, you wave a magic wand over it, and it becomes something else. So we're going to start with, like, a hammer, and then you wave a magic wand over it, and now it changes into a duck. And I'm going to say, hey, look at that hammer. Now, it's not a hammer anymore. Now, at the time that I'm saying that, it's a duck. But you were first introduced to it as a hammer, right? And when I say that hammer, you can kind of figure out which thing I mean. I mean, that thing that we were just talking about, the one that used to be a hammer. And the fact that it's no longer a hammer is just kind of like incidental. It doesn't break your mind. It doesn't make you think we're talking about something totally different. And so we found that just like in that kind of example of the man with a martini, adults are totally happy to do that. So when you give them the scenario, you have a couple of different objects, and then you've got this one magical object, and you say, oh, wow, like, look at that, look at the hammer. And then, oh, wow, look, it turned into a duck. Can you give me that hammer? Right? They totally know to click on the duck to choose the, 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 the hammer turned into duck. Um, right. more than a duck that we've never talked about or a hammer that we didn't particularly single out. Kids 
don't do that. Kids refuse, and this, this is what we found, is kids refuse to talk about something that is now a duck as that hammer. When you say, you know, give me that hammer, they do not give you that that hammer that turned into a duck. They only will give you something that really still looks like a hammer. So in other words, kids are really, really prioritizing the description, right? They're, in this case, like they're really prioritizing the the noun. So, you know, if you say, give me a duck, they want a duck. And if you say, give me a hammer, they want a hammer. And if you say, give me that hammer, they still want a hammer. Um, doesn't matter that it, you know, that there's this other thing that we have just been talking about. Now, what is going on there? We we really, really don't know, except to say, here's what we do know. We know that kids do understand the difference between the word uh and the word that. So it's not like they just like don't know what words you're saying and therefore they're insensitive to that kind of grammatical distinction. That's not the case. We know that for sure. Because if we give them a versus that, but the description matches in both cases, they'll give us different objects. So if we say, hey, here's a hammer, click on that hammer, they'll give us the same hammer that we were just talking about. But if we say, hey, here's a hammer, click on a hammer or click on another hammer, they're more likely to give us a different one. Right. So they know that distinction, but it seems like that just the descriptive information is just overriding whatever the description is. Uh, I'm sorry, whatever the, the distinction, the grammatical distinction is that they're understanding. So the description is really is really the thing they're going with. And for adults, it's the other way around. For adults, it's the grammar is really the thing that they're going with. And, you know, if you ask for a hammer and now it's a duck, as long as I can figure out which object you're talking about, it doesn't matter. So that means there's got to be some development here, right? There's got to be some developmental trajectory where kids go from being more description oriented the way that we found they are to being more grammar oriented the way that adults are. And then this is just the next step, you know, just what what is going on? What is this development? Why is that happening? Is it just a matter of weighing the grammatical cue more than they used to? Uh, maybe it's just kind of as simple as that, just being like, oh, yeah, this grammatical thing is really important for figuring out what people are talking about. I should really pay more attention to that. Like before, I kind of understood it, but I just thought it wasn't that big a deal. Now I should really understand this is really important information somebody's giving me. So maybe maybe it's just a matter of that. Or maybe it's a really kind of different understanding of how language and these these particular aspects of language interact with objects in the world and what it is that people are referring to when they're using different words. So really kind of understanding that grammar has this primacy that you should really try to understand what somebody is talking about by first kind of looking at what grammatical particle they're using, identifying whether they're talking about a, the same object they were before or something new, and only then using the, the descriptive information to select between different candidates once you've narrowed that in. So that's yeah, th those are, I think, different possibilities. And, and that's, you know, that's a way to go forward. Okay, cool. Yeah, no, that's... that's <laughs> Sorry, possible. maybe that was too, more detailed than you bargained for. Oh, but, no, that yeah. was perfect. I mean, yeah, I'm just like sort go. of processing. That's, but that's really cool. I didn't, I mean, like it could, you could even like say it has something to do with, like as we grow older, we're just sort of like more able to kind of follow directions in a way, or we figure out what people are, we're just better at figuring out what people are asking for. I mean, I feel like there's like so many different thing, different possible explanations for why why we've changed, right? Because right. I think there's like there's kind of two questions you could say. Okay, why are kids like this and adults are this, and maybe adults is like the right way, or wh why is it that we went from prioritizing descriptions to prioritizing grammar? Like, why did that happen? I guess. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So 
you know, is it just kind of learning how people around you tend to talk and what they tend to mean? And the more information you get about that, the more you kind of calibrate. It's not like adults are doing it the right way. I mean, there's no right or wrong way to do it. But if you're a kid, you basically have to figure out how adults talk just because that's what's happening around you. And that's the information that you have to extract, right? And so maybe you're just learning kind of their patterns of, you know, what are they talking about when they say certain things? Or maybe there's a real kind of maturation of, you know, just your system for understanding language in general. So it's not just a matter of like learning what the right cues are. It's a matter of uh, the way that language works in your head really structurally changing, right? Um, so you just didn't understand or or couldn't understand the importance of grammar in conveying this information. And then something happens and that kind of clues you in. And then of course, you know, the mystery would be, well, what happens? What, what is that thing that changes? So yeah, so I think I think there's a, a couple of different open possibilities there. But but yeah, but fundamentally I think I mean I think you're right that it's it's about learning, you know, what is it that people intend? What is it that people mean? But the way that we communicate what people intend, you know, what we intend, is by using some words and not other words. Right. So that's like or choosing one grammatical article or you know, choosing a versus that or choosing that versus a. And that's what I use to tell you, am I talking about that object or this other one? Right. And so that's exactly the information that kids have to have to clue into to do the intention reading, to do the right kind of fig figuring out what you mean. I wanted to ask you about semantics and pragmatics, because I know that that's oh, yeah. a big thing in your work. So overview of what that is for people who don't know, I guess, and then the difference between the two and our understanding of them. And what did I say in my question? I said, and how the difference between the two are very well understood, despite no formal instruction, right? Why is it yeah. that we know the difference between semantics and mathematics really, really well, everyone, even though no one explains this, because you're going to have to explain what the difference is right now. <laughs> right. Okay. So here is, I think, broadly how, how lists or psycholinguists think about the difference between semantics and pragmatics. The idea is that we can understand how uh, language works in your head, not in your conscious awareness, right? But uh, but in this in this unconscious system of knowledge that you have about the language that you use, we can understand that by decomposing it into kind of two separate parts. There's the semantics part, which is basically what is kind of think of it as the literal meaning of the words you're using, of the way that those words are composing into a sentence. Um, just what does that sentence mean, kind of independent of how it might relate to anything in the world? So I, just to give you an example, like if I say the cat barked versus the dog barked, you know that one of those things is talking about a cat, one of those things is talking about the dog or a dog. You don't know which ones, right? Like I haven't told you anything about the world. You don't know which cat I'm talking about or which dog or whether even this is real or imaginary, whether I made it up, whether it's true or false. But there's a sense in which you kind of know what that means, right? And you know what the difference is. Okay, so that's the semantics side. It's just understanding that meaning. And then the pragmatic side is connecting that meaning, so taking that meaning, and connecting it to the world, interpreting it relative to some particular state of affairs. So, you know, if I see a dog, or I see a cat, and then I say the cat barked, the pragmatics would be taking the meaning of my sentence, and then interpreting it relative to like, okay, what are we talking about? Oh, yeah, it's that cat, the cat that I see the cat that maybe you can see too, right relative to that particular 
thing in the world. So that's that's the kind of distinction that, that you know, and that's a very, very rough gloss of it. But that's a kind of like theoretical distinction that that I think people often draw. Pragmatics is meaning enriched by additional knowledge, enriched by context, enriched by what you think people are talking about, enriched by your read of what you think people are intending to convey, why they're saying whatever they're saying, right? But the kind of unenriched part, the just core basic meaning part, that's meant to be the semantics. And I should say that this is like, this is a theoretical notion, right? This is a way to explain how people use and understand language. This is not a thing that is accessible to people themselves, or that like, we obviously know is, is a crisp and clear distinction in all cases. In many cases, it's really actually not clear whether a particular phenomenon or a particular thing that people do with language is due to semantics or pragmatics or some combination of the two. Where exactly that boundary is, or sometimes even where the, whether there is a boundary, is not clear. So these are just kind of theoretical notions that theorists are using to understand what's going on, right? Like if you ask a naive just a, a non-scientist English speaker, hey, you know, did you just use semantics or pragmatics to understand that sentence? They'll look right. at you like you have 17 eyes, right? Because they just don't know what that even means. So this is not like an intuitively accessible notion. This is a, a, a scientific term of art. Right. Okay. That's that's a really great, more in-depth overview of what semantics and pragmatics is. Normally when people ask me, you know, what's your favorite part of linguistics? Oh, semantics, pragmatics, what is that? Uh, oh, it's, well, you know, if you could close the window, that'd be great. Right. Because that, semantically, that is a statement. That's like, okay, cool. It'd be great if I could close the window. But pra- pragmatically, that's a request, you know, or, or a demand or whatever it is, you know, please close the window. And um, Steven Pinker, the Harvard, I guess he's a psycholinguist, cognitive yeah. scientist, but he does a lot on this. And he has this whole, like, he has, I think he has a TED talk and he's just like lists off different famous examples of something that is semantically one thing, but pragmatically something else. Um, right. And it has this sort of comedic effect because when you look at, all these phrases through what they actually mean. It just like makes no sense. Like, you know, if you could pass the guacamole, that would be awesome. Or do you want to come up and see my etchings or something like that? Like it's just like going through all these sort of euphemistic sounding sentences that we use that we use to mean something very different, but like no one's confused. You know, I'm not bewildered when, when anyone says something like if you could close the window, that would be great. That's right. That's right. So this is exactly what I mean by, by you know, there are theoretical constructs here, because when, when somebody just says that to you, like, if you close the window, that'd be great. You don't think, well, there's the literal meaning, but then there's right. like how it relates to the world and what the person would want me to do. Like you just interpret it as that's a request to close the window. Cool. You're not aware of the kind of decomposition of different maybe mental processes that are going into building up that understanding that, oh yeah, this person wants me to close the window. But in terms of like studying how this how this might actually work in your head, kind of trying to reverse engineer, you know, the computer program that is helping you understand that request, um, it turns out that it just gets us a lot of, of mileage to treat them as somewhat separable processes, right? To say, okay, there's a part of what you're doing that is just understanding the literal meaning. Like you're just understanding if you could close the window, that would be great. You know, you understand that it's a sentence about closing the window, not closing the door and not opening the window. And then there's the pragmatics part, which is figuring out, okay, now that I've got this literal meaning, why did this person say that in this particular context? Oh, because the window is open and because they're cold and because they, I'm standing near it and 
you know, they want me to do something about it. So just theoretically decomposing these into separable parts of the understanding process of, of language comprehension, it, it just turns out that it goes a long way towards explaining how you're doing it. So yeah, that's 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 why I think linguists and, and psycholinguists and psychologists um, like those notions because it, it really helps to distinguish those two things. Right. Yeah. Cool. And then it goes into like, you know, it goes into like metaphor kind of, you know, I think like it's it's a cool thing to understand if you're a poet or if you're an English major or whatever, like understanding semantics and mathematics is useful, I think, for anyone who's looking to be clearer in all ways. Totally. Yeah. Totally. You know who it's really useful for? I always think this. People in marketing, I'm always shocked how much people in marketing seem to not understand pragmatics, even just on an intuitive level. And then I think, okay, like maybe you actually have to study this stuff. Uh, my favorite recent example of this that I saw, it was a, a for sale sign on a house. And then above the for sale sign, it said, not haunted. Why? <laughs> now, exactly. Now, yeah. think about the pragmatics of that. What does it do when you tell something that somebody that the house they're looking at is not haunted? What that does is it raises a question in your head. Why is this person telling me this? Right. Was it ever somebody, haunted? Yeah, yeah. Was it haunted before? Is it not haunted now because they got an exorcist? Uh, was there some doubt about whether it's haunted? Right. So it raises this question <laughs> yeah. that you weren't even considering before. And I'm 100% sure it backfires because... You know, normally when you're looking at the house, you don't ask yourself, is it haunted or not? But now that somebody put up that not haunted sign, you go, oh, wait a second. Now I've got to wonder about that. It like puts the thought into your head. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's exactly kind of the distinction between the, the literal meaning and, and the pragmatics. Like, yeah, the literal meaning is that it's not haunted. That's great. That should be totally reassuring. But the pragmatics yes. of saying that something is not <laughs> right. haunted when no one asked are weird right they kind of raise this yeah. issue raise this question a anyway once you start like paying attention to this kind of thing you notice it all over the place it is so common for these sorts of like ads and stuff like that just to backfire in this way because you're like oh now they got me thinking about this thing that they did not want me to think about right yeah that's a great example that's like passing someone the guacamole it's not expired you know like <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly right <laughs> yeah this is this is actually so among more savvy marketing people this is a common marketing technique right so you'll see it's like the i think the classic example is like uh marketing a brand of beer and saying lead free you're like oh compared to oh. your competitor like d d you know yes. it's like if my brand of beer doesn't have lead are you implying that the other brands of beer might have lead in them <laughs> right? interesting so if anyone's listening and works for a dark chocolate company my mother sent me an article the other day apparently like consumer reports did a study now on dark chocolate and there's like high levels of lead in dark uh -huh. chocolate apparently they're finding like dangerous metals or whatever and Ghirardelli is apparently low in these dangerous metals. Right. So Ghirardelli should start putting on their packaging, like, only this much less in our dark <laughs> You know, don't buy the other brands. They have well, right. Yeah. So, so yeah, so here's the trick is how do you get the right contrast into people's heads? Because if you just put lead free, that's like putting not haunted, right? <laughs> right. So if you just put lead free, people are going to be like, uh... Is that like a new recipe? Did old Giardelli used to have lead in it? But you want to put in lead-free, unlike our competitors. So there are subtle ways of doing that, right? Like you can you can say the lead-free chocolate, implying that that's yes. it's the only one. It's unique, right? There's a bunch yeah. of other chocolates, and those ones are maybe not the lead-free ones, right? The, this is the one. Um, so anyway, there, there's kind of like a bunch of uh, little kind of linguistic uh, 
tricks that that one can use to do that. But um, but I'm always struck by how insensitive people who do advertising are yes. to the kind of message that they're communicating yes. a lot of the time. Like they're just often communicating something that I really don't think they intend to be. Yeah. <laughs> like yes. with the not haunted thing. Yeah. Why? Why should everyone study linguistics? People ask me all the time, why are you a linguistics major? Or like, ooh, linguistics, that's so weird. That's so interesting. I've never heard of that. What is that? Yeah. Why is it important that everyone understand language? Why should we all be studying language? Why is it cool? Yeah, well, okay, right. So we just talked about one reason, which I think is a, is a good reason, which is if you really want to understand what effect your word choices have on things, which I think is like a useful thing yes. to understand kind of no matter what line of work or no matter what you do, then then it's useful to study things like semantics and pragmatics, especially maybe pragmatics, to try to get at that and to not do things like put not haunted on your for sale sign if you're a real estate agent. Um, okay, so that's that's one possible reason, but that's kind of a narrow one. And that's like a very practical one. I just, I want to make a defense. You know, people ask me this all the time too. It's like, why do you do this? Like, what what are you doing? Usually in a kind of like skeptical way. And I, I have an answer. I don't know if this is a satisfying answer to everyone, but my answer is just like, I really want to understand stuff. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that for its own sake. I think that the idea that it ought to be useful for something else is like a really weird thing. It, it's It's like some cultural norm that we have or that we've developed or that maybe like nervous parents have developed because they want their kids to get jobs and and not be hungry understandably but just like intellectually there's nothing wrong with just wanting to understand how something works i i want to say that like most of the scientific progress and then subsequent technological progress that all of humanity has ever made has basically at bottom been driven by just the desire to understand how stuff works. And linguistics is the study of how language works. And it's no different than anything else. You know, it's a language is just, it's a natural phenomenon. As soon as there are humans, there is language. Uh, And so it's just a thing that's worth understanding for its own sake, just like you know, you think physics is worth understanding for its own sake, how objects move and how mechanics works and how, you know, why are there planets and stars and what is that about? There's lots of fields of study that are just because we're curious animals. And I think it's okay to study linguistics because you're a curious animal who is curious about this particular thing. That's that's why I study it fundamentally. I don't think I need another more practical reason. You know, it's not because I like want to help people. I mean, I independently want to help people, but that's not why I study this stuff. You know, really, if I'm honest with myself, I study this stuff because it's interesting. And I and I think that that's, you know, I think that that's okay. Thankfully, we live in a world where there can be room for that and I think should be room for that. That's awesome. I No one's ever given that answer before. People always give like a very specific reason why they do it but that's that's a good defense of everything right you just because you're interested in understanding it and I think that that's what drew me to linguistics in the first place it was like this is something that I should know something about because it's interesting and it's cool and it's complex so it changes the way you look think about the world you know once you understand or have a name for all these kind of things like reference and and presuppositions especially it just changes the way you think through conversations and the way you act in conversations it it just it changes the way that your mind works the same way that studying math changes the way you think about the world exactly i just find that totally unappealing <laughs> uh unfortunately 
So thank you for that answer. That's I think that's a really, really great defense of this field. Yeah, I think everybody's allowed to be curious about different things. I mean, I love math for what it's worth, but you know, but I don't think everybody has to love it. And and just like linguistics, I don't think everybody has to be interested in that particular thing. But some people are going to be, and that's yes. great too. I, I I worry that, you know, everyone, anyone can be interested in math and anyone can not be interested in math, and that's fine. But if someone's interested in linguistics, it's because they have to be like introduced to it at some point, right? It's not that's something right. that you stumble upon in school. And that I think is part is one of the things that I I'm I just like frustrating. Because in order to actually start to be interested in linguistics, you kind of have to know what it is and be introduced to it. And when is that going to happen if you're not yeah. in a very specific scenario? Yeah, I mean, so this is maybe a bit of a like pet peeve of mine or something, but people do kind of study linguistics at school, except they don't know it's linguistics, right? So when you right. learn about grammar in whatever it is, third grade, fourth grade, I don't remember what grade it is, um, you're basically being taught some version of linguistics except usually it's by people who themselves don't have training in linguistics. And a lot of the time say things that are just flat out wrong. Like how many times did you learn that like verbs are actions, right? In like fourth grade grammar class, yeah. like, for, okay, well, verbs are not actions. That's just not true. There are tons of verbs that are not actions. There are tons of nouns that are actions. Like I went for a run. My run was an action that I did, but it was a noun in that sentence. And if that's how you're taught to think about what nouns and verbs are, you're going to be really confused a lot, right? So there, so I actually think linguistics is kind of taught, except it's just taught in many cases incorrectly. Like you're, it's, it's just like really the wrong distinctions and the wrong definitions of things. And it, A, I, I think you're right that it just because it's not introduced as linguistics, most people haven't heard of it by the time they get to you know college and, and uh, they kind of wonder what are those like strange classes I've never heard of and they have these opaque names like, like syntax and semantics, like what are those words? What, yeah, what is morphosyntax? Yeah. Yeah. What is but like, yeah. But it's not, it's really not that different than like what you did in fourth grade grammar class, just the like kind of more accurate version of it. Yeah. So I think that if like one thing that could really improve things is if it was called linguistics in English class or, or you know, whatever that class is, and it was taught with some understanding of actual linguistic science and, you know, some understanding of like really what syntax is, what semantics is, because that's basically what those teachers are teaching anyway. Um, they just, I, I think a lot of them don't realize that what they're teaching is basically linguistics. So anyway, so I, th I think I think given that it's already kind of being taught, it actually wouldn't be that big a leap to to teach it better and and with an introduction that like this is linguistics. Yeah, it, it seems like you know, like I said, this is kind of a pet peeve. I you know, I I, yeah. I don't have much power to change that particular aspect of the education system, but like boy, it's annoying because then also students have to unlearn a lot of stuff that they learn, like that noun verb stuff. And then yes. you know, I've talked to so many people who are not linguists who just are like, yeah, that stuff that I learned never. It never really made any sense. Like I found all of these exceptions and, you know, I never knew how to think about them. And like when I, you know, and then my teacher would say things like, oh yeah, but those are exceptions, but like the rule is this anyway. And, and I just like, that never made any sense. So yeah, that's. Yeah. I, there's a lot of exceptions. Yeah. yeah I wish, it, I wish it, people's fourth grade skepticism was encouraged more. I, yes. <laughs> giving, giving kids the power would be great. Yeah, we noun verbs and we verb nouns and yes. we do it willy-nilly and, you know, Google is now a verb that all of us know. It wasn't a verb 20 years ago that anyone knew. Uh, it started out as a noun, as the name of this company or of the search engine, and it immediately became a verb, right? And this this kind of stuff just happens constantly. 
Um, the white dictionaries have to keep introducing new words because we keep making them up. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? Nobody is doing anything wrong when they're making up new words. This is just how language works. This, this is what we all do, and it's, it's fine. It's not, you know, speaking inappropriately. Thank you so much for listening to Tomato Tomato. I've been your host, Talia Sherman, and that was my interview with Professor Roman Feynman. You can find links to his research and to his website and to research that he mentioned in the interview in the episode description. Thanks so much to Professor Feynman for joining me for this podcast episode, and I will speak to you in the next episode. Bye.